Thanks to Grammarly for supporting Motley Fool Answers. Grammarly is a communication tool that helps people improve their writing to be mistake-free, clear, and effective. Start writing confidently by going to Grammarly.com fool to get 20% off a Grammarly premium account today. This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick. I'm joined, as always, by Robert Brosif Brokamp, personal finance expert here at The Motley Fool. Hello, bro. Hello, Allison. On this week's episode, we're going to talk about the War of the Walled Gardens, by which we mean the growing competition in streaming video. Does it signal the end for Netflix? Well, it's probably not good. Jason Moser is here to help us decide. All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. So, bro, what's up? Well, I'll tell you what's not up. Interest rates, they're not up. Did you know that last month, for the first time ever, the 30-year Treasury yielded below 2%? Historic low. And so you wonder, like, why is this happening? Why is this happening? I'm why wondering. is this happening? More and more concerns about the dreaded R word, recession. Uh, these days, uh, it, if you took a survey of economists, about a third would say that they expect a recession some point in the next year. What is driving that concern? Well, there's that trade war that's been going on. A recent study from the Federal Reserve estimates that it could actually knock about 1% off GDP up through 2020. Plus, we've had a pretty long expansion. Unless something happens over the next few months, this will be the first decade since the 1850s, when they started paying attention to such things, that we didn't have a recession. How is that reflected in the bond market? Well, people fly to the bond market for safety. It drives down rates. In particular, these days, longer-term rates are actually lower than shorter-term rates. That means the yield curve is inverted which has historically been a pretty accurate precursor to a recession. Usually takes a while, almost a year, but when you see an inverted yield curve, historically, chances are you're going to see a recession in the next year or two. You sound so smart when you say inverted yield curve. I think I'm just going to start dropping that into conversation. Don't you think, Rick? Doesn't you sound like smart? (laughs) (laughs) That said, there have been a, a couple of false positives where there was an inverted yield curve and there was not a recession. But regardless, at some point, there will be a recession. So, what does that mean for the average person's finances? We're going to talk about eight things that usually happen Whoa, eight. during a recession. All right, let so, me get comfy. Here you go. Number one, stocks drop. Generally speaking, they drop about, start to drop about six months before the recession. And according to the Capital Group, which is the folks behind the American Family of Funds, they start to rebound about six months into recession, and then they've recouped their losses over about 18 months. So usually it's not too bad. Um, the average loss during a recession depends on how you look at it, but it's like 20 to 30 percent. Some have been very shallow. That said, the last two recessions we experienced, the dot-com crash and the Great Recession, those were declines of 50 percent, and it took more than five years for the stock market to recover. But basically, this is why we always say any money you need in the next few years should not be in the stock market. Number two, rates also dropped. So it's already started. They could continue to go lower. The Federal Reserve is going to meet in a week. Everyone expects them to drop the Fed funds rate by 25 basis points, maybe 50 basis points. Around the world, there's this phenomenon of negative interest rates. Hasn't happened yet in America. But Alan Greenspan recently just told CNBC it's only a matter of time. So rates could keep dropping. What does that mean? Well, ideally, you could refinance your home, get a lower mortgage, uh, good time to refinance your car loan, student loan. 
Hopefully, your credit card rates will also go down. So that's actually pretty good news. Number three, bonds hold up depending on the bonds. So generally speaking, when rates go down, bonds go up. That's we've seen that this year. Bonds have actually made almost 10% so far in 2019, which is a pretty extraordinary return for bonds. In 2008, when the S&P 500 went down 37%, bonds went up 5%. The only thing is, it does depend on the type of bonds. Treasuries do well. Corporates do generally okay, but it depends on how far you go down on the credit rating. When you're looking at junk bonds, they do not do so well. They lost 20% in 2008. So the more you are concerned about a recession, the more you should keep your bonds to treasuries or highly rated corporates, or maybe just play it safe with cash. Number four, the price of your house actually might go up. So I think a lot of us were stung by the Great Recession, and that was really the the first time when we saw a nationwide drop in home prices. The truth is, when you look at recessions historically, home prices actually hold up well. And there was a study by Mark Holbert, and he published it in Market Watch, where he found that when you look at the Case-Shiller index of home prices. It actually does better during stock bear markets than it does during stock bull markets. So historically, in most cases, your house is actually a good hedge against a recession, against inflation, and a stock market drop. However, during the Great Recession, what we saw the last time, that was not the case. So there will always be outliers, but generally, houses hold up pretty well. Number five, inflation generally goes down. So this is the upside of a downtrodden economy. Prices generally do go down. So, what does that mean for you? Well, it's actually a really good time to make a major purchase, buy a car, get an appliance, because all those folks are out there trying to get consumers to come in and buy something. So, if you have the means and you're looking to make a good big purchase, a recession is actually a good time to do it. Number six, employment goes up. So, according to the Washington Post, the unemployment rate has risen 2.4 percentage points on average during the 11 recessions since World War II. So, it goes up slightly, but of course, sometimes it can be worse. What was the worst since World War II? Well, it was the last one, the Great Recession. Unemployment went from 5% to 10%, and on average, people were out of a job for six months. So, that's a good frame for what we talked about, the emergency fund, how much you should have. Um, and the way to prepare for this, of course, is to have the emergency fund, but also to keep your debt levels manageable, because that's where people get in trouble. They have high debt levels, they lose their job, and they could no longer pay the mortgage or anything else, so they, they lose the house or they lose the car. So, have the emergency fund and keep your debt levels manageable. Number seven, employers reduce benefits. So, even if you are fortunate enough to remain among the working, chances are, Something will get reduced, right? You may not get a raise, you may not get the bonus, your 401k match might get eliminated. That's happened here That's at the Motley Fool. Yeah. Then the Motley Fool kindly made up for it retroactively. That usually does not happen. Um, so you'll see stuff like that. You may not have a fancy holiday party at the end of the year. Might be in the conference We've room. Done that. We've done that too here <laughs> at the Motley Fool. A potluck instead yeah. of a fancy party downtown. Yeah. Uh, but so even if you do. Manage to keep your job, and most people will. You do have to expect that you'll probably have to tighten your belt a little bit, some way or another. And number eight, in a recession, stocks do go back up, and the economy eventually recovers. So for those who have the cash on the sidelines and the guts, buying stocks in the middle of a recession is, can actually be one of the best investments sure. you ever sure. made. But you can't wait until the recession over is over because the stock market begins to recover before the overall economy. But 
history has shown us the economy will recover. You will be able to go back to the fancy holiday party at the hotel downtown, mm-hmm. and stocks will eventually they will recover and reach higher highs. See, the, on that last point, though, that is where I think some listeners hear, I should try to time the market, as opposed to, I should just be always in a good financial position where I can continually put money and invest it so that I can be investing in the lows and the highs. We get questions all the time about people trying to time the market. Right. It's very difficult to do, and and I would not recommend anyone do that. What I recommend is that someone always has a little bit of money out of the stock market, so that A, you either have it as that emergency fund if you need it, or it's the dry powder that you can use to buy stocks when prices are down. Is that what happens at the Brokamp household? Generally what happens at the Brokamp yeah. household. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Have you been able to do that in the past? That's yeah, good. yeah, yeah. Yeah, but 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 there's a cost to that, right? So having some money out of the stock market has cost us during this expansion. Yeah, but like many things related to some sort of margin of safety, whether it's insurance or having some cash on the sidelines, some of it is just peace of mind. I just feel better knowing that I have that optionality. And is that what's up? And that, by the way, is what's up. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks to Grammarly for supporting Motley Fool Answers. Grammarly is a communication tool that helps people improve their writing to be mistake-free, clear, and effective. Grammarly Premium looks out for spelling, grammar, plus advanced punctuation, structure, style within context, vocabulary suggestions, conciseness, and readability for different occasions. Easily improve yourself and your communication at school, work, and across platforms, including online browser extension, desktop editor, and mobile keyboard checker. I personally get to use Grammarly, and I love it. It's helped me catch so many mistakes and improve clarity in the messages that I end up having to send to the whole company. Uh, it has prevented me from um, sounding really dumb. I always say you can't be your own editor. Someone else has to edit you, and Grammarly has caught plenty of things for me. Even when you? I, even me when I didn't have an editor, yeah. Oh, wow. Even me. I'm, I'm human. I'm yeah. human. I make my mistakes. I don't know about that. You're a very good writer. Thank you. <laughs> Go to Grammarly.com slash fool to get 20% off your Grammarly premium account today. That's Grammarly.com slash fool for 20% off your Grammarly premium account. With the lights out, it's less dangerous. Here we are now. And an amazing time to be a consumer of content. So many options, so many shows to recommend to coworkers that they don't actually end up watching. How are you enjoying Dairy Girls, Robert Brokamp? <laughs> I watched one and I quite enjoyed it. Okay, but that's that makes about, me feel better. It only it. took me ten years to get not ten years. It took me a, a few times of recommending Dairy Girls. I was having that conversation yesterday with Matt Greer, <laughs> telling him about all of these latest and greatest HBO shows that he needs to watch. Um, and I'm sure he'll probably get to one of them at some point. Maybe. It's just too much. It's too much. There's so much. And it's only getting crazier. That, of course, was Jason Moser piping in, by the way. He's <laughs> Sorry. Us. He's joining us today because um, this year and also closing out the year, there's going to be a lot more streaming platforms available, which is going to put some more pressure on companies that have been longtime recommendations at the Fool here, like Netflix. 
And so today we're just going to talk about it. We're going to talk about some of our options uh, when it comes to streaming video and investing in these kinds of companies. And um, really, how does it look for Netflix? Not good. Well, I mean, I- <laughs> we can get to it later. Yeah. We can get to it later. I don't know. So the, from the research I did, every article I read, I was just like, ooh, oh, ee. But I don't know Netflix. I'd say it's a more challenging environment today than it was five years ago. How about that? For everything. Just let's for everyone diplomatic. all the time. <laughs> all right. Well, let's start off by talking about Disney. Uh, of course, Disney earlier this year, actually just what, last month, two months ago, announced Disney Plus was coming. Mm-hmm. So let's head to the tail of the tape. Disney Plus is going to launch on November 12th, so it doesn't have any subscribers to talk of yet. Well, that's not true, actually, and I'll oh. explain, but keep going. Okay. All right. Content will include Disney, Pixar, Marvel, Star Wars stuff, 20th mm-hmm. Century Fox, movies, 25 original series, also National Geographic. It's expected that Disney Plus will have about 7,000 television episodes and 500 films. Iger says eventually the whole vault, yes, the whole vault, (laughs) will be available on Disney Plus. Uh, All right, so how much is Disney going to spend? Well, they're going to spend about $500 million in original content for the service, but obviously they're spending a lot of money on content all the time everywhere. The Mandalorian alone, one of the Star Wars um, TV shows, is going to cost $100 million. So mm. that $500 million might might be a lowball offer if just one of the original series is costing that much. Um, price will be $69.99 a year, or about $7 a month. You can also do a bundle with Hulu. Mm-hmm. Uh, which um, there's Disney has recently taken control of, and also ESPN Plus, and that will be twelve ninety nine a month. So that's the tale of the tape for Disney Plus. I think, as uh, both a lover of Star Wars and a parent of a six year old girl, we are going to be running, not walking, to <laughs> sign up for Disney Plus. Well, I fully agree with you. And as a parent of two older. Girls, we've got a freshman in high school and an eighth grader. Um, wow, I can't believe yet, your oldest is in high school. I know, and every birthday they have reminds me that I had one too. Uh, they have. There's a lot of content though that they want to watch on Disney Plus as well. So I think they've done a good job of of building out this offering that is going to scratch an itch for everyone, so to speak. Um, going back to just the subscriber count that you talked about a little bit earlier, mm-hmm. Disney did something very clever at the D23 conference this year where they. You know, they they release all of this information on what's going on in the Disney universe, and and so of course D twenty three had much to do with Disney Plus and the content that's coming out, and they offered pre subscriptions. You could sign up in advance, Mm -hmm. and not only that, they said if you sign up for two years, we'll give you the third one for free. So they really were working on pulling the levers to get those subscribers in there early, Uh, and. By all accounts, it's worked out pretty well. It certainly overloaded the servers and uh, shot everything down for a little while until they got back in there to fix it. But it does sound like a lot of people are um, as enthusiastic as you and I, and I would assume Bro's probably pretty enthusiastic as well. Very much so about the Star Wars. My kids are, are kind of probably too old for the Disney stuff. But How about the high school musical series? But see, I might just have to convince them that they still like Disney <laughs> just enough so I can get the Star Wars stuff. Well, but this is where I think they've been so clever with this whole thing, because 
Um, Hulu has obviously been around for a while. Hulu has had a few different uh, iterations. And now, I mean, what they've done with Hulu is actually pretty clever with this Hulu Live offering. It's essentially cable light. Uh, it's, it's a much more affordable package than your traditional cable package. And it really focuses on the content that people want to see. Um, and it's a lot easier to use and to sign up for and manage. So, you've got Hulu. You've got Hulu Live. Now, you've got ESPN+. And, you know, you look, I mean, for a guy like me, I mean, I went to Wofford College, okay? Okay, very small school. Uh, we had one heck of a year last year uh, for the basketball team, but really most of the games for Wofford, for example, are going to be on ESPN+. So, you get that bundle together, I mean, I'm there. And at twelve ninety nine, it's a no-brainer. I'm doing myself and my family a disservice if we don't sign up for it. Um, it's so, like abuse, really. It's well, yeah, it really is. It's like a Costco membership and Amazon Prime. If you don't sign up for it... Are I mean, you even American? Exactly. I mean, <laughs> I mean, what in the world is going on? Um, so, I mean, you know, this all goes back to, it's been a while, we've been talking about this stuff for a while, what Disney was planning on doing, and now it's coming to fruition. And man, it really looks like it's going to be something pretty impressive. Uh, November 12th being being the drop date for Disney+. Plus, and, you know, it's not all going to hit at once, but that's going to be the neat part, is they're going to build the service out over the course of many, many years, adding content and, believe me, raising prices along the way. And that's really the genius of starting this price point so low. It's going to bring a lot of people in. And then they're going to get in there and see how much they liked. And then, over time, they're going to be able to bump those prices up slowly but surely and convince you that the value proposition makes sense. And uh, so, so I I think that's that's one of the main reasons why we're all pretty optimistic about it right now. What happened um, with the stock price? How's Disney's share price been doing? Because I... Man, we bought a while ago, and I don't know if I don't know. I feel like I've just been like waiting and waiting for Disney to just take off because of the optimism I have in the company, <laughs> and it just hasn't. Well, it, the problem with Disney, Disney's stock is not going to be something that just takes off overnight, and part of that is because a lot of it's already known. There are not a lot of secrets there, right? I mean, we understand kind of what the business is about and the different ways it makes its money. Now, I do think that we've seen over the past. Uh, several months, particularly 2019, it's been a pretty good year for the stock, and because we've seen a lot of certainty come down the pike here with all of these new offerings that they're bringing out. Uh, so, so we're starting to see a little bit more clarity as to what the future holds, and it's exciting. So, so we've seen a little bit, um, a little bit of enthusiasm in the stock price. But really, Disney is one of those stocks where you have to look at the five and ten year holding period. Uh, being one of the first stocks that my daughters bought, for example, I think they've owned it ever since 2012. And it's it's up about 150 percent or something like that, but but you know you would never know it unless you actually went in there and really calculated it out. It just it's kind of slowly but surely winning the race. Um, one of the big themes, of course, around streaming video is the whole idea that content is king. Yeah, and boy, Disney has. I mean, they are king of content, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, well, they are. You're right. I mean, I think that's the the advantage they've always had is that they own all of this IP, and the IP that they didn't own, they went out and acquired it. Whether it was Marvel or Pixar, uh, or most recently Lucasfilm, they've got something for everyone yeah, in that Simpsons. regard. Yeah, I mean, I mean and now what? and now 21st Century Fox, and so they have so much in that mm-hmm. regard. And, and that is going to be something that really fuels this engine for a long time to come. Now, on the flip side, you see something like Netflix, where 
Netflix was never really the content king. They were just getting content from everywhere else and basically aggregating it. And where Netflix really scored was on the distribution side. I mean, they saw early on the power of the internet and how to build out an internet TV service. Uh, so you have content being king on one side. Is distribution king on the other? I don't know. I kind of like to say if content is king, then distribution is queen. And really, we all know that behind a good king is a better queen. You have to have both is really ultimately what I'm saying here, Allison. And, and Disney now is going to have it. But Both what's, ways. what's harder, to create good content, consistently create good content, or to create a platform when people can reliably watch video? I think once you nail the platform, you've nailed the platform. I think to build out sustainably good content that keeps coming, uh, that keeps people coming back for more is probably a little bit more difficult, particularly if you don't own it and you have to figure out how to how to create it. And so that's going to be where I think Disney has a leg up there because you know we've seen with Netflix getting into that original content game, they've had some hits, they've had some misses. HBO has been doing that for 40 years plus, it seems like. They've certainly got it down to a science where they produce a lot of great content as well, but even they're not immune to the the occasional miss as well. So, distribution, I think, for the foreseeable future really is going to be pretty much as we see it today. It's mobile, it's internet, it's it's you know catering to where we are and whatever we want to watch it. So, now it is going to really be more about uh, the content, and, um, and, and it certainly looks like Disney is... is Got the advantage there. Yeah. All right. Well, let's move on and let's talk about Apple TV Plus. All what? right. Apple because who? because Plus is the new <laughs> yeah. I. I think it's like everything's this plus that plus. So something we're probably less excited about. I would say uh, less excited is probably an understatement. For me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't really. I'm not quite locked into the value proposition yet here. Um, I, I I admire Apple for a lot of reasons. I, I do feel like they really dropped this TV ball so long ago that there's really no getting it back. Now, I mean, let's be clear. I mean, this is a company that could just stamp its logo on a brick and probably sell three million of them. You know, no questions asked. So, I mean, there are going to be plenty of people out there that love Apple. They're going to think this is the greatest thing since sliced bread, and they're going to just justify it however they're going to do that. Um, I I don't see it yet. Uh, now that's just from the Apple TV interface. From the content side, we've seen at least one show that they are going to be bringing to the market. It's some newsroom type morning show right. drama or whatever. And I mean, I guess that's fine, whatever. But you know, the content discussion we're having here, I think Apple is going to discover very quickly that it's difficult to do, and it's difficult to do sustainably, even if you have a lot of money and it costs a lot of money. And you need to be careful getting into this because. You know, you need to understand the strategy and why you're you're doing this because you can get caught spending a lot of money on that content really fast, and you can kind of go down one of those rabbit holes. It's very difficult to get out. Um, so, frankly, I, I feel like this is not where Apple should even be bothering. I don't even see why they're bothering with it, but I almost feel like they're doing it because we expect them to do it. Kind of like with the watch or with this credit card. It's just to me, it's meh. You know. Whatever. Whatever. Well, they've got enough money. I yeah. mean, they might as well just throw yeah. some money at this, right? So, all right. So, yeah. So, um, Apple is only investing only $2 billion a year in original content. So, it includes um, an Oprah show, a Spielberg thing, yeah. the aforementioned morning show kind of comedy that you talked about. I think it had to star Steve, Steve Carell, Carell and Jennifer and, Aniston. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, um, big names. I mean, yeah. they had big names at the launch, um, but it's. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I just don't know what audience that's really trying to capture. I mean, Oprah certainly is 
It's Oprah. Yeah, I mean, it's Oprah. I mean, she's she's obviously carries a lot of sway there, but I mean, she's worked, I think, for some time on her own network, the yeah. Oprah Winfrey Network, and I mean, that was never anything that really changed the world either. I, I you know, at some point or another, people's flame kind of flickers out. I mean, I, I feel like Oprah probably is closer to that than than others, but you know, again, I mean, you got to start somewhere. Yeah. All right, and it'll it's rumored to uh, that'll eventually cost nine ninety nine a month. So doesn't sound like a very compelling <clears throat> price, particularly when you compare it to Disney and what you can get from from all of those three different channels. And really, I say three channels and ESPN and Disney Plus and Hulu. But remember, Hulu is far more than just one channel. I mean, Hulu kind of like an aggregator in that Netflix sense. Also, their own original content, and and they've brought some good stuff to market there as well. Uh, so from a value proposition standpoint, the the Disney offering certainly seems to be a lot more uh, compelling than the Apple one. Yeah. We also have coming down the pike, um, which we're not going to dig into, um, HBO and Warner Media, they're going to launch a new streaming service. Oh, yeah. And NBC Universal is launching a streaming service in 2020. Um, Viacom and CBS apparently announced a merger, and so yep. they're going to be doing something, too. That it's really becoming kind of this walled, walled gardens, as I heard someone reference it, where everyone has their own walled garden of content, and you've got to pay to get into it. All right, let's talk about Amazon really quick. All right, so, tale of tape, Amazon Video, of course... Amazon's in a unique position, considering this is kind of like, a, eh, here, we'll throw some video content at you, why not? Um, they have Amazon Prime has about 100 million members, so content on Amazon includes uh, a fair amount of originals like Marvelous Miss Maisel and Fleabag, um, HBO series that are more than a few years old, and kind of a random smattering of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, Amazon spent six billion in 2018 on original content and plans to spend another six billion in 2019. Yeah, I mean, Amazon is, it's a unique strategy because on the one hand, they're trying to convince us that their Amazon Prime video offering is, is strong on its own. But then, you know, you mentioned the HBO shows and other different network shows where they'll offer you perhaps a season or two of one of their best shows. Mm-hmm. And the idea is maybe they can talk you into signing up for a subscription for something like like HBO or Showtime and, and getting that subscription through your Amazon uh, interface. Uh, so, similar to Hulu in that regard, Hulu's got the same kind of thing. And, and um, I mean, I, I definitely don't, don't blame them for doing that. I mean, I think at the end of the day, most people, once they've joined Amazon Prime, they're going to stick with Amazon Prime. They're going to see that video uh, product as just one more value add. It's not about offering up the best and most award-winning shows that they possibly can. It's about giving the customer something that makes them feel like they're getting value out of that overall relationship. And so, for Amazon, it's a much different in game. And I think that really goes to show sort of the value in, in being more than just a one-trick pony when it comes to this uh, video streaming game, or wars, as some might want to call them. I mean, I think when you're a one-trick pony, you got a lot more on the line. Your successes matter a lot more, and, and so do your flops. But but when you have other ways to make your money or other things that you're doing in, in uh, with the business, uh, you can be a little bit more experimental and try new things and, and uh, get away with it when it works and, uh, and kind of make us forget about it when it doesn't. Yeah. Hey, speaking of one-trick ponies... It's time to talk about Netflix. Man, oh. It had to happen eventually. Right? All right, here's a tale of the tape. 60 million subscribers in the U.S. and 150 million-ish worldwide. Of course, the content includes a lot of original programming and also a lot of licensed stuff. Licensed by people 
like Disney and a NBC. Ah, uh, that gets that. Oi, <laughs> that's what's keeping Reed Hastings up at night, huh? Uh, the cost varies, but most people pay about thirteen dollars a month. Um, yeah. So I thought this was interesting. Apparently, everyone already knew this, and I'm the only one who didn't know this. That even though um, Netflix spends what like. 12 to 15 billion on a, original content. It's about 15 billion yeah. annually now, yeah. Yeah, that actually what most people are just watching is The Office and Friends <laughs> and stuff that's licensed. Yeah, I mean, it does sound like the data supports that. I mean, I can tell you just from our household of four, uh, we easily, I mean, I, I think. The Office probably gets the most play on our Netflix subscription as as uh, compared to any other show on there. And mm-hmm. I mean, I you know, content is un- It's interesting in that everybody's got an opinion, right? Content is art at the end of the day, and everybody has an opinion on art. Um, I like I, I look at Netflix, and I personally think, you know what, the content for me, I, there's nothing really. I I don't think it's all that great. I'm more of an HBO guy. I just I always have been. I think they have better shows. Um, there's an occasional Netflix show I watch. I mean, but you know, I think it's just for a long time Netflix was really the only player in the space. Mm-hmm. I mean, they they defined this space, they invented it, and they've ruled it forever. Um, and and so you can't take that away from them. I think that what we're seeing now is a natural consequence of more com- uh, competition entering the fray. And and I think Netflix is going to have to think about how they are going to change their strategy a little bit. They're already making uh, some adjustments, and they're focusing a little bit on spending less on content in, in instead of trying to just throw this big, wide world of a million different shows out there and have a little bit of, of something for everyone in the world. I think they're trying to be a little bit more thoughtful about the content that they make and make a little bit more quality stuff that attracts uh, an audience similar to something like what maybe HBO does. Mm-hmm. Um, they are looking at potentially, instead of releasing every show at once, releasing them in batches, like three or four shows at a time over the course of a month or something, so that the shows can live a little bit of a longer life. Uh, you know, you were talking about the the Mandalorian. I think a hundred million dollars. Yeah, so yeah. yeah. You think about you think about how much money you spend on some of those shows, some of those series, and if you do ten episodes and you drop them all at once, and you have people watching this entire series in a matter of a day, and then it's gone, it's over. Not only is the series over, but people aren't talking about it, and and so you need to figure out a way to draw that conversation out. And so I think Netflix is looking at trying to do that. Um, they seem to be very committed to never introducing advertising to the platform. That was a question that was brought up in the most recent earnings call. And and I, I think that that's the right thing to do. I think that if they ever tried to bring advertising, it would run counter to what Reed Hastings has been talking about all this time um, in, in producing just this experience that's not cluttered mm. by it. Uh, it's interesting on their shareholder letter. I, I, I noticed this, and Hastings said, like HBO, we are advertising free. Now, that's true to an extent. But remember, HBO is owned by AT&T. And AT&T is not advertising-free. There's a big advertising revenue component to AT&T's business. So, HBO and Netflix really are not playing the same game from that perspective. HBO can hide behind the big corporation. Netflix, unfortunately, can't. And I think the questions regarding their finances are fair. They have a lot of money that they owe. They're going to have to keep paying a lot of money for Four, content going forward. $4 billion in debt in the well, last and, year. And they've got $18 billion plus in content obligations right now. Yeah, uh, They're going to have to continue to pay a lot of money in order to develop new content. And, oh yeah, by the way, a lot of that stuff that they've Built this business on with the Marvel content and whatnot is now leaving because of Disney. Mm-hmm. So there are a lot of questions uh, as to 
the Netflix for investors. I think personally, Netflix is always going to be a mainstay. It's going to be a staple of people's streaming subscriptions. I think people are always going to subscribe to it because it's a great value proposition. Now, as an investor, I think you have to be asking the question: How much more can they raise prices? Because I don't know that they can raise prices a whole heck of a lot more if the content is going to be just kind of what it is. And to put some numbers around that, if worldwide they have around 160 million subscribers today, if they increase that just two dollars per month, seems pretty reasonable. It's probably where people might start taking notice. That's 320 million dollars per month, around 3.8 billion dollars per year. That money has already been spent. And that's just a hypothetical, but that $3.8 billion doesn't even come close to, to you know, continuing to fuel that engine. So, you can see the challenges that they yeah. have on, on the content front. And, and so, that's why I just say for investors, I think that's one of the things you have to kind of keep in mind there, because I think it's going to become, for Netflix, more about how much more can they raise prices, less about how many more subscribers can they add. Well, I saw an interesting quote in um, Recode talking about all these new streaming services coming out. It said, "If you want everything, you'll need to get Netflix and Hulu and NBC Universal's thing and AT and T's thing and Disney's other streaming service." Um, and it's funny because we got to this place, I think, because we all wanted to cut the cord. <laughs> but now we're going to be well, spending so much What money. was the point of cutting the cord? I right? Know. It was it was convenience. It was getting what you wanted. Only pay but really, for what I want. It was paying less, right? I mean, you're paying the cable company two hundred dollars a month for all of this crap that you never watch, and then you're beholden to the cable company with this box in your house. And if it breaks or God yeah. forbid something happens, yeah. then you got to deal with the cable company. And so, you know, the, the streaming the over the top movement here is is helped from a lot of a lot of perspectives. I mean, now you don't have to worry about the cable company, and and that's great. But the cost argument has disappeared more or less because, like you were just saying, if you want to watch all of your stuff, basically now you're getting close to that same two hundred dollar cable bill as you yeah. were paying for before. What I need is for someone to disrupt um, delivering internet to my house because I yeah. still have to pay Comcast a ton of money every month just to give me internet so that that I can then get all these other streaming. Well, I think you're you're fair. You know, it's it's a fair statement for you to say something like that. I think people feel the same way probably about Verizon. Verizon, we get our uh, internet from Verizon, um, and when we moved to a new house a, a few years ago, you know, I told Verizon to cancel my cable. I just wanted the internet. And of course, they tried to offer me cable for basically free, and I turned it down because I don't want to deal with them. The less I have to deal with them, the better. Uh, but slowly but surely, they are raising the price on the internet, and therein lies the value of being the company with the infrastructure that delivers that so so valuable wireless connection. You know, I mean, they <laughs> have, have it. They have. They have. They have a big leg up in that. So I mean, whether it's Comcast or AT and T or Verizon. Uh, having that infrastructure is so valuable. And again, I mean, those are companies that exist for investors, and and they can be great investments. They're not companies, they're not stocks that'll double overnight. But you see companies like that, they're able to pay out really nice dividends uh, over the course of time because there is a level of certainty to the business model. I mean, that they're what they're providing us is really what is making this earth turn more or less at this point. Uh, so they can continue to offer up nice dividends without having to worry so much about the debt levels because they've got a pretty reliable revenue stream. So those can be good investment uh, investment ideas um, as long as you understand the purpose they would serve. In your portfolio, it's more of a uh, slow and steady dividend payer that you want to hang on to for many, many years to really realize the effects. All right. Well, what's your bottom line thoughts as we enter this exciting war in the battle for our eyeballs? My bottom line thoughts. I don't know. Well, sum it up for everybody. 
My bottom line thought is beyond just video streaming, I think entertainment has turned into a market opportunity that is uh, one that investors cannot ignore. I think that we go well beyond just you know five years ago, seven years ago, we were just talking about Netflix and kind of that being the future. Uh, that. Future is now, and we're seeing a lot of competition in the space uh, on the video streaming front. But we're seeing uh, so much more happen. Whether it's Amazon trying to bring hardware into your uh, house or Apple trying to bring hardware into your house, Microsoft developing a gaming platform. I mean, we're seeing these big tech companies uh, trying all of these new things because they're all competing for our attention. So there are a lot of different ways to invest in it, and I think that's the bottom line: is to really try to step back and see the entertainment industry for what it is, because it's much more than just video streaming. I mean, we're talking about everything from the technology uh, to the delivery of that technology to the content behind the technology. We've got an environment now where gambling is, is, is uh, you know, becoming legalized virtually everywhere. I think it's just a matter of time before it's everywhere gambling is legalized, and that adds a new dynamic to sports. Um, advertising is a tremendous uh, driver in the entertainment industry as well. A lot of different ways to, to invest in advertising. So, that, I think, is the ultimate takeaway, is investors need to look at entertainment as a massive opportunity, identify the different pillars that are really driving that entertainment industry, and start figuring out ways to invest in those for the long haul. Which is why we're going to have you back on the show at some point here to talk about another component of that, which you mentioned um, sports, esports, video oh, games, yeah. all of that. There's all sorts of stuff to talk about. A lot to unpack there. It's crazy what the kids <laughs> yeah. are looking at these days. All right, Jason, you want to stick around for um, a little trivia? See how smart you really are? Well, I can tell you I'm not that smart, but I will stick around. All right. Well, we talked a lot about uh, a number of video streaming platforms and companies, but one we didn't talk about because I don't really understand it because I'm old is that's YouTube. And obviously I get YouTube. I get YouTube. I know what it is. I understand it. I don't think I watch nearly as much YouTube as the kids watch these days. So, what we're going to do here is I'm going to ask you some trivia questions about YouTube and see what you know. Did you know that um, in an average month, 8 out of 10 18 to 49 year olds watch YouTube? What does that mean? Like they watch a short video or anything? They... they just watch it. Then mm. that I believe it. I listen. I pose the question to my daughters. If I you, you have YouTube mm-hmm. and Netflix, I'm going to take one away from you. Which one is the one, which? What's the one you want to keep? And they both said without without even hesitation, YouTube. YouTube. Yeah, 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 I could totally see yeah. that too. It reaches more 18 to 49 year olds than any broadcast or cable TV network wow. as well. So, all right. Let's see how much you know about YouTube, the thing the kids are watching. Hey, I watch it a little bit too. I mean, like, you know. We all do. Like, who doesn't? Who doesn't watch YouTube? But it's more of a, like, I'm curious about this one thing, and I look it up usually while I'm at work, (laughs) as opposed to going home. Getting a glass of chocolate milk and pulling up YouTube. Right? Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's like, oh, I need to learn how to do drywall. It's and so a, I'm going to watch a video a on drywall. It's much more educational. I use it yeah. a lot for painting and, I mean, some, yeah, home repair stuff. It is, it's, for me, it's more of an educational thing. Yeah. You guys are old. Yeah. <laughs> what Thank you. Watch? Oh, you have drywall you have and painting. Come on. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Watercolor painting, not painting the house. That's like, right. You know, art, Jason's very like, talented. He's a very talented watercolorist. <laughs> Although I will say, I just recently got done painting our deck too, so I guess it goes both ways. All right. First question. I'm going to give you some. This is a multiple choice. What is the founding story for YouTube? 
Is it A, frustration on the part of the founders at not being able to able to track down online video of the Janet Jackson Super Bowl wardrobe malfunction? Hmm. B, inspired by Hot or Not, remember that website, to be a video dating site? Or was it C, created after the founders were frustrated about not being able to share videos they took at a dinner party together? Wow. I, I would have a hard time believing the Janet Jackson thing is the founding story, but um, I am going with the dinner party thing just sounds too cheesy. I'm going with B. I'm going to go with the dinner party. Janet Jackson. So, here's the thing. You're all kind of right. So, there are three founders, Chad Hurley, Steve Chen, and Jawad Karim. Uh, and they knew each other from working at PayPal, which is kind of interesting. Hurley and Chen say that it was inspired by a dinner party. But Kareem says that it was actually inspired by wanting to see that infamous, can I say, <laughs> nip slip on radio? I sure. can't uh, It's a podcast. A we say whatever we want. So, Chen later admitted that the dinner party story was a more marketable version of the actual origin story. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, you're kind of all right. Good to um, know. And it's true that the first iteration for YouTube was to be called Tune In Hookup. Oh an oh online boy. video dating yeah. website. Jeez, this just gets better and better. I know, I know. All right. Faith in humanity is just <laughs> rapidly The descending. internet, it brings out the best in all Doesn't of us. It? All right. Closest without going over, how much did Google pay to acquire YouTube in October of 2006? I believe it was $1 billion. I'm going to say it was, I think it was higher. I'm going to say oh, $5 billion. Yeah, well, maybe it was. Three billion. I, was, I thought you were going to say one dollar. Uh, actually, one point six five billion. Uh, you were close. Considering that an- analysts estimate that YouTube's ad revenue is around fifteen billion, that's not a bad deal. Not a bad deal not at all, deal at especially all. when you consider all of the ways they can use it. I mean, from gaming to advertising to music, entertainment. Man, YouTube is a powerful engine. Jason, I, I'm. You probably recall, as I recall, it was not viewed as a really smart move by Google at the at time. At the time, everybody was thinking, "What are you kidding me? That's a lot of money for something that really no one could no one could see around that corner." Uh, and then, you know, lo and behold, the internet and mobile technology took off, and here we are. I think it was Mark Cuban who said it was. It's basically a, a site for copyright infringement and cat videos. <laughs> And, uh, He's not totally wrong. <laughs> and we love it. <laughs> Just didn't realize how valuable that yeah. was. <laughs> That's a pretty good, pretty good plan. Um, uh, and as a side note, for anyone wondering what the current plan is with YouTube, um, they were creating some original content, but now Google slash Alphabet is like, nah, we're not going to go down that path anymore. It's hard to do. I mean, they we know ad revenue. They captured lightning in a bottle, I think, with that Karate Kid thing. But even that, I think, lived a very short That's life. That's the only and show that I was told was actually you just good. recognize it's yeah. not easy to do. Yeah, it might as well like lean through your strengths. If your yeah. strengths are selling ad revenue, like ads, and do that, right? Yep. Okay. What famous soccer player was the first person to reach 1 million views on YouTube? Famous golfer? Soccer player. Golfer? (laughs) I don't know much about about soccer. Um, Is it Diego Maradona? I'm going to say Mia Hamm. I don't know. Messi? Ronaldinho. I don't know. It was a video. Did I pronounce that correctly? Ronaldo? Roll your R's a little more. Ronaldinho. Uh, it was a video produced by Nike of him doing some soccer tricks, like uh-huh. dribbling and bouncing it around in October of 2005. The first to reach 1 billion views was Gangnam Style. 
Uh, right, I was cool. gonna say Pele, but then I thought, that was my first. That would really that, that would really, really show our age. <laughs> I wish it were me. Kids out there are like who? Pele. According to Forbes, the highest earning YouTuber is a seven-year-old boy named Ryan, who unboxes and reviews toys. Again, close this without going over. How much does Forbes estimate he made in 2018? Now, I will say I've actually, I've actually seen this toy un- unboxing phenomenon, and it is hard to get a get a grip on. But I, I feel like he's bringing in millions doing this. I, I want to say like 3.2 million or something like that. I'm going with a dollar. <laughs> <laughs> I'll go 10 million. Twenty-two million. Oh my god! Yeah, it's insane, man. I watch. I tried to watch some of the videos, and it's basically this kid just kind of playing with toys, and then sometimes he does stuff with his mom, and they're yeah. Has Hannah watched it? No, Hannah. We don't let Hannah watch YouTube um, because it's um, and maybe there's some parental controls that I need to put on it. But there's just been times when she started off watching an Elsa video from Frozen, and then all of a sudden she's watching an inappropriate Elsa video that some pervert put on YouTube. So she's not allowed to watch YouTube. (laughs) All right, last one. Closest without going over. Every day, people around the world watch how many hours of YouTube content? That's every day. How many hours? Like total or per person? All around the world. Total number of hours. I'm going to go with a billion. Yeah, I mean, I'd say like 1.4 billion hours of content. 500 million? It was a billion. You nailed it. Whoa! I don't know money. (laughs) All right, guys. That's all I got for you today, but well played, as always. Jason, thank you so much for joining us to talk about this. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, and we look forward to having you on in the future here to talk about esports and other stuff that I really don't understand. You know, I'm going to be in the studio every time you ask me to come. Oh, That's thank outstanding. You, you thank guys you. are great. Hey, who wants a disclaimer? As always, The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against the stocks we talked about today. Don't buy and sell stocks based solely on what you heard on this show. The show is edited plusingly by Rick Engdahl. For Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody. Bye.